With all the information available these days on terrorism and counterterrorism and how we're doing and how we're not doing and what we should be doing, who should you listen to? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada, listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about all matters national security. This is a big world we live in, and there's an awful lot of things happening, an awful lot of moving pieces, moving in various directions simultaneously. And it's sometimes really, really hard to get a handle on not just what is happening, but what does it mean? Uh, A lot of voices out there, which is always a good thing. Uh, More voices are better than fewer voices, but sometimes it's really difficult to determine which voices are the more credible ones when it comes to things like terrorism and counterterrorism. I am... uh, Please as punch today to have as my guest somebody who has uh, worked in this field for a very, very long time uh, as, as a journalist. Uh, his name is James Dorsey. He's a senior fellow at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. He's a syndicated journalist. He's a award-winning foreign correspondent. He's He writes almost more than I do, which is hard to believe, on a number of matters. And so he has joined me today to talk about a variety of issues when it comes to terrorism in, in Asia and the Middle East. So, James, thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the easy one, James. Um, Afghanistan. Uh, you've written about it extensively through your blogs and articles. It, it seems like everybody is weighing in on what Afghanistan means in the wake of the Taliban. Uh, to some surprising, to me, not surprising takeover. What is your general take on, on Afghanistan now the Taliban have returned to power? Where are we as of you know early fall, in, at least in the, in the Northern Hemisphere, 2021? Are things Should we be worried about things getting much, much worse or... Is it still too too early to tell? I think the jury's out. Uh, should one worry? Of course one should worry, because one has to take precautions and maybe even assume a worst-case scenario. But reality is that the jury is out. The jury is out on what the Taliban want to do, and the jury is out on what the Taliban can do. Uh, so if one takes the Taliban by their word, then they are bent on ensuring that Afghanistan does not become a launching pad uh, for political violence, transnational or trans cross-border political violence. Um, and, you know, I'm slightly, I'm inclined to take them by their word that that's not what they want because they never were a transnational jihadist movement. Right. They were always an Afghan movement, and they, for a whole variety of reasons, were not going to expel al-Qaeda from Afghanistan, even if al-Qaeda had broken its promises to the Taliban. But they themselves are not a, in that sense, global jihadist movement. Agreed, agreed, yeah. And, of course, the Taliban... I, I think it's a bit premature and maybe overstated to talk about the Taliban 2.0. Mm-hmm. So we, it may be overstated uh, in terms of a lot of the uh, the social and, and, and human rights and women's rights issues that one has with the uh, Taliban. But the Taliban do realize that things have changed in the last 20 years. So they realize that even within the uh, strict social and political constraints that they impose, uh, women do have to be allowed to go to university. Um, so, but I, but I think that, that, that recognition 
uh, calling that a, a Taliban 2.0 may be giving them far too much credit. The second question is the second question is whether they're capable of imposing their mm -hmm. will on mm -hmm. uh, various uh, groups in uh, and there are multiple groups in uh, in Afghanistan. So I think what the rea what that's going to depend on is um, several things. One is their own relationships with those groups, and that differs. So they're at war with the Islamic State for all practical mm -hmm. matters. Mm -hmm. uh, some groups have um, effectively signed an agreement with the Taliban and uh, bowed to uh, Taliban demands uh, in terms of where in the country they would be located and under what conditions. Others like Al-Qaeda uh, have refused to sign such an agreement uh, are not bent, and for reasons that I'll, I'll cite in a moment, are not necessarily bent on cross-border operations, but are wary of the Taliban in the sense that they don't know, that they're not quite sure what the agreement with the United States entails, and they don't know what groups uh, or what agreements the Taliban may or may not uh Come uh, uh, agree to with the, with the Russians and with the Chinese. Now, the interesting thing in all of this is that there's a shift in jihadist thinking, uh, and that goes partly to the core of the difference uh, differences, for example, between the Islamic State and uh, Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. uh, the Islamic State continues to believe in spectacular operations, whether that's, you know, 9-11 or what the Islamic State itself did in Paris mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and, and inspired elsewhere in Europe, versus uh, a belief that is uh, uh, gaining ground with Al-Qaeda, for example, that those kind of attacks ultimately uh, contributed to their to not maybe not to their downfall but to significant setbacks and that therefore and that the way the Islamic State went about trying to create uh, a state uh, led to uh, a very fierce counter-terrorist response by multiple states and therefore they should maybe be looking much more at making their mark locally and uh, with examples of good Islamic governance. Can, can I pick up on that point, James, for a second? It's something that, sure. that we're, I, I, I find you um, surprisingly more optimistic and pessimistic than I am in terms of where the Taliban are going. But this notion that the, the, the Taliban have again proclaimed the Islamic Emirate, which, of course, they did when they took over the 1990s. Is there not a parallel in a way? between the Taliban declaration of the Islamic Emirate and ISIS's declaration of the Caliphate in 2014. Now, that's the same thing. But what worries me from a, as an ex-security intelligence guy is this notion that we have, again, an Islamic Emirate, some kind of an ideal Islamic government as the Taliban see it. Is that not possibly going to serve as a magnet 
for the so-called foreign fighter phenomenon where people from Western countries will go to Afghanistan because they see this as the, the purest way of living in an Islamic way. And of course, we saw what happened with ISIS. There were you know, thousands of people that came from many countries, including Canada, that went to fight for ISIS and carried out attacks around the world. Is that not a concern, you think, that this will be interpreted by, by jihadis as the place to go to now? Several points. I'm, uh, I may be more optimistic than you are, I don't know. But I think it would be an overstatement to say that I'm optimistic. <laughs> okay, sorry for that. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. I, I am more, uh, I, I, what I, I think one's got to be very careful and, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. And, and be very clear about what you know and what you don't know. Right. Always and a good a idea, result, by the way. As a result, I don't know enough to make a, a, a judgment finally. So for me, it's a wait and see attitude. That's one. Second of all, I think one has to be careful when it comes to, and I deliberately don't use the word terrorism. I use the word political violence. Uh, uh you know, because I think it, 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 the the attempt with ter- terrorism is a is a highly ideological word that seeks to reduce what is a political act as as horrible and violent as it may be uh, to simple criminality, and it's about more than criminality. Um, but I think one one has to be careful with when one looks at a host of politically violent groups, uh, throwing them all in the one in one basket, agree. And, and and one size fits the all, fits the other. So I think that's maybe maybe why you're reading opportunism uh, op- uh, optimism <laughs> into what I'm saying rather than what I'm trying to do is be be very precise, if you wish. Right. Now coming back to your concrete question about foreign fighters. Um, I actually think that that by de- is not by definition what needs to happen. One, it will depend on how uh, how well uh, the Taliban can control their borders. Right. Um, and again, we don't know that yet. Uh, some of those borders are porous. Uh, it will to some degree depend on what... uh, how uh, Afghanistan's neighbors act. So in the past, you have seen various various of uh, Afghanistan's neighbors, Iran, Pakistan, for example, uh, allow militants to go back and forth. So uh, that's the second factor. The third factor is what, what makes this different from Syria is in Syria, you you were one. You were establishing a, a state. You were uh, fighting a, a dictator, and that attracted. If you get a fight in uh, in Afghanistan, it's going to be a fight between militants. Mm-hmm. So it would be a fight, for example, between the Taliban and no, okay. uh, the uh, the uh, Afghan branch of the Islamic State. Islamic mm-hmm. State Khorasan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not really an attractive proposition to some guy in France. True, true. Or in Saudi Arabia, or wherever mm-hmm. it may be. So I think that at the, at the likelihood that um, 
that uh, you're going to see that sort of influx and that Afghanistan is going to be that attractive, uh, I think is, is, is relatively low. Those are interesting points. I'm glad you raised them. It's something that I have been thinking a lot about. And I think the way you framed it is uh, there's a lot of validity to that. I guess, as we said, and, and your, your, your caution is very wise, right? We, there's a lot we don't know. So it's no point in drawing conclusions based on, on, a, on a real paucity of data. And we'll sort of have to wait and see. Changing gears a, a bit, uh, James, you talked about, sure. you know, Afghanistan's neighbors. Uh, of course, India, you know, being uh, a part of this. India is very concerned about what's happening in, 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 with the Taliban. But the other thing, and you've written about this a fair bit in your blog and other pieces, about Hindu nationalism and, and even Hindu extremism in India. I, I had a whole chapter on Hindu extremism on my next to most recent book, uh, How Religions Kill. From your perspective, having looked at the issue, how bad is is this form of Hindutva, this Hindu nationalism? And we're seeing more persecution of Muslims in Assam state. Uh, trying to evict people that can't prove that they were there for generations or whatever. Is this something that, that that's sort of flying under the radar in terms of, of violent extremism? And secondarily, um, what is the role that uh, Narendra Modi, the prime minister, is playing in all this? He seems to be promoting uh, Hindu nationalism over other forms of, of Indian nationalism. So could you weigh in a bit on those types of questions? The short answer is it's bad. Mm. Uh, with other words, it is a supremacist view in which, uh, you know, supremacist in the sense that Hindus are supreme. Mm-hmm. It's racist and mm-hmm. it's discriminatory. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, if you're, if, if I were a Muslim in India, I would not feel comfortable. Exactly. Narendra Modi's role in this is central. He mm. comes out, I mean, he was a member of an organization called the RSS, right, which is really the the cradle of this form of Hindu nationalism, since he was eight years old. That's what his political party comes out of. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so in that sense, I think this is serious and it's bad. <clears throat> Sorry, um, there's a larger picture here. Uh, I had started to write a book uh, about um, four years ago, which was on the, ri- <clears throat> on the rise of what I called civilizationalist leaders. These mm-hmm. were leaders, you know, they included uh, Modi, they included mm-hmm. Viktor Orban of Hungary, uh, mm-hmm. Xi Jinping, er- uh, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump. Mm. And in my mind, what these men had in common was that they thought in civilizationalist terms. Right. And they thought in terms of a civilizational rather than a national state. And that what that meant in some cases, as in the case of China or Russia, for example, that borders were not defined by what the national borders of Russia or China are today. Mm-hmm. but they're defined in civilizational terms. So not nation states, but much larger than that then. Right. So I live in Singapore. The Chinese, ref- uh, Singapore has a population that in the large majority, not exclusively, it's very much a multi, you know, 
racial multi-ethnic state, but a, a significant majority in the country is of Chinese ethnic origin. Right. And the Chinese refer to Singapore as a Chinese country, much to the uh, much to the ire of the Singaporeans. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, you know, and with Russia, think of Ukraine, think of uh, Georgia. Right, uh, right. In other cases, Modi included, or Trump, it's civilizational, but there's no no need to expand borders. It's civilizational right. within those borders. Right. Um, I, uh, I I sort of half dropped, I've dropped the book, at least temporarily, because I felt that uh, the Trump if Trump were not to win the election, then, um, or the, you know, the, the, his second term, then that would, to some degree, change the book. And mm-hmm. uh, I didn't want to run, run the risk that it, by the time I published it was out of date already. Right, right. So I decided to go write another book in, this, in the meantime. <laughs> but I started to, I started in ways to pick it up again. So what I'm trying to say with this is that, yes, it's bad. But it's not, in a sense, not uniquely Indian. It was mm-hmm. part of a global, uh, uh, a global um, trend that we were seeing, that now seems to be a little bit on the on the back foot. We'll see what happens with elections in France uh, mm-hmm. next year. We'll see what happens with the what how the AFP does in Germany in elections this weekend. Um, right. We'll see what happens in the midterm elections in the United States next year. Uh, you know, it's not, it's, it may be down, it's certainly not out. I, I really like that that framing of the civilizational versus the nation state. And, and of course, into this too, you must sort of throw in the whole, uh, you know, this, 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 this almost like cultish nature. I mean, Narendra Modi has a following as if he's some kind of a god. Putin has a following in Russia. Erdogan has a following in Turkey. Xi Jinping. I'm reading a lot about, you know, this whole notion of Xi Jinping thought, where young, right. young Chinese are being educated that Xi Jinping can do no wrong. And much in the same way that Mao was in the 1950s and 60s. So I, I think you, you've really hit on something here. Um, I, I want to turn now to the fact that you, you write a blog, um, which has, to me, an absolutely fascinating title. And I have to ask you about it. So your blog is entitled The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, or football as most of the world calls it. Why in heaven's name did you name a blog like that? And what what is it that you're trying to achieve? What kind of messaging, what, what kind of information you're trying to purvey uh, through this blog? Well, talking about publishing, by the time you publish being out of date, that's <laughs> in a sense the story of the, the title. Not quite. Uh, my, my career has been ethnic and religious conflict. And so 11 years ago, I, well, I wrote a piece, I'm not a sports fan. And I wrote a piece by as a fluke on the eve of the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. Ah. About the reasons, the political reasons why uh, Middle Eastern countries weren't faring well in World Cup competitions. And a friend of mine, a very successful writer and a football fan and a football player whose kids play football, phoned me and said, you have a book. And you know, you know what happens when somebody says to you and the penny drops. Uh, I was looking for a way to write a book after you know many, many years of having been a foreign correspondent in the field. 
that was not going to be a memoir or another memoir, wasn't going to be another analyst. Um, and uh, football suddenly, you know, that was the prism. And so for a number of years, um, probably 2010 to 2014, maybe, I'd have to go look it up. Uh, the blog was indeed looking at the fault lines in the greater Middle East, so the Middle East, Central Asia, North Africa, South Asia, looking at fault lines through the prism of sports. Interesting. And one of the things that I hadn't realized was that <clears throat> sports plays a role in the history of countries and regions at, at given points in their history. It by and large does not play a key role throughout the history almost continuously. Mm -hmm. And it's the Middle East was unique in that, in that uh, football, sports in general, but football particularly, played a role in uh, nation state, you know, anti colonial struggle, uh, nation formation, nation state building, uh, resistance, fight for, for all kinds of rights. Uh, all the way through 2000, you know, past 2011. And so that's where that title came from, because that's what I was doing. Oh, but then yeah. in about 2014, 2015, I thought, I, I felt that there were all kinds of things I did want to write about that I could not frame within the prism of football. And so I actually moved, you know, occasionally I still write about football, but I moved beyond that but didn't change the title. Um, what, I mean, so partly out of you know, fear, if you wish, it, it became my brand. Right, right. You know, I'm referred to on Twitter and whatever as Mid-East Soccer, which is, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, and so it became my brand. And, and so I, I let it ride. But I'm now very close to the point where I am going to change the title. Uh, I'm trying to figure out just how to, how, how to do a smoother transition if I, I certainly can empathize uh, with you as somebody who has changed the title uh, of my blogs and podcasts, which were originally called An Intelligent Look at Terrorism, being a play on words that I used to work in intelligence, to where it's now called Canadian Intelligence Day because the, the abbreviation is CIA, although C-I-E-H, my sister-in-law suggested that one. And so I, I know what happens when people associate you with one particular brand and, and you switch. James, um. The last question I want to ask you is something that I'm really curious about your views on this. And you've used a word with me, which I find fascinating. There's a there's a terrorism and a counterterrorism industry that has been built, especially in the wake of 9-11. I mean, terrorism predates 9-11, as, as you well know, and as, as I know, but it's really taken on an incredible momentum since the, the events of just a little more than 20 years ago. The numbers of, uh, you know, People looking at terrorism, be they scholars, reporters, whatever, has grown exponentially. Uh, it's pretty hard to get through the news in any one given day without having a dozen analyses piece on what does this mean? What do the Taliban mean? What does Al-Qaeda mean? What does right-wing extremism mean? You would think in theory that having more voices is always better than having fewer voices. But do you think that there are problems with this so-called terrorism slash counterterrorism industry? Are we being well served by it or has it created a complication that has actually made us in some ways less aware and less knowledgeable than we could be about the ver the veritable threat from terrorism around the world. 
I think the problem is that, yes, there's an industry. And there are sub-sectors to the industry. Think of the counter-narrative industry. Yes, oh, obviously, yes, yes. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, and everybody, you know, it's something, something becomes fashionable, and this has been fashionable for quite a long time. Uh, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, the problem with it is that, you know, at, that you need a guide. First of all, I think people need a guide, and, I, you know, I, uh, and, and then you've got to trust the guide that allows them to separate the wheat from the chaff and to... to this, that's one problem. The second problem is that it's an industry that's highly ideological. In a in an environment in which uh, you know the industry is highly ideological because it has a vested interest, it serves political purposes, and it uses language that has become common everyday language. That when you take a step back, is highly ideological. Mm-hmm and already presupposes a conclusion. What that does is not only that you get a cacophony of voices, I am in no way in favor of restricting that, even if the, the, the majority of those voices is wittingly or unwittingly incorrect. But what it what the danger of it is that it doesn't allow for dissent. Exactly. You know, so with other words, people who may have what I would consider a little bit more of a sanguine view, or in any case, take a, a different tack, either get you know crowded out or maybe even denounced. Yes. And so I don't think that the problem is the multitude of voices. The problem is ensuring that you have a free and fair debate, mm. an open debate. Mm. That, that is um, extremely well stated. Uh, I have been very worried that in the past, past couple of years, especially in the West, I don't know if you're probably, you're probably not seeing this as much in Singapore, but in, the, in North America and Europe, it seems like the, the terrorism debate has, has turned almost completely to regard the phenomenon of right-wing extremism and all its manifestations as some kind of an existential threat to Western society and the jihadis, Islamist extremists, well, that, those, those guys were yesterday's news, and we don't have to worry about them anymore, uh, despite the fact that worldwide the jihadis are still killing more than 99% of all people who die in terrorist attacks. And you're right, people who raise, who say that the right wing isn't nearly as dangerous as some are purporting it are shouted down, uh, and they are excluded. I, I, I can speak from personal experience on this, and you, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, a multiplicity of voices is always a good thing as long as those voices are allowed to be heard, and we can have rational debates and not right. reduce ourselves to name calling and shunting to the side and ignoring. And so in your opinion, then, is this, is, is this industry just destined to sort of continue along the same? Is there, is there a way to, to do this better? Or are we, is this the way it is going to be for the foreseeable future? Before I go back to that, let me just come back to something you said in the uh, introduction to this question, which is that worldwide more people have died at the hands of jihadists than of, of the right wing. That's probably true. I wouldn't question that. But if you look at the United States, for example, it's not true. Yeah, and, and in some ways, you know, you, you need to point that out. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carries yeah. such weight in this whole thing. 
So that that's just uh, if you don't mind. Uh, right. Yeah. L- look, I I think that um, no, essentially, no, you're, you're not, and you're you're absolutely right on that. The problem here 100%. is that even those institutions that are that are supposed to be independent have become part of this industry. So think tanks. You know, in mm-hmm. in my view, think tanks are supposed to offer an independent mm-hmm. judgment. You know, so it's they're supposed to help government policymakers, uh, others, uh, form formulate uh, opinions and formulate uh, 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 policies by having an input that is not that does not have a vested interest. That's no longer true for um, for uh, for think tank. They're given the funding that they get, uh, given the ideological uh, positions that some institutions uh, adopt. So they've become part of the industry. Universities have become part of the industry, uh, and there's a lot of consultancy work out there. So so I think that's part of the problem. I mean, if you take Singapore, for example, Singapore, in a lot of ways, to me, was a model of how it handled post 9-11. And, you know, there was political violence and is political violence in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Singapore was targeted, but was able to foil plots until now. Yes. Even though it assumes that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's just had a very small number. But nonetheless, a, a, a number of people who have either gone to Syria or wanted to go to Syria. And, but it was very good in not making the mistake that Western states made. So the Muslim community was not on the defensive in Singapore. It was part of a community effort to try and ensure security and safety. And it, and, it, and it never, it never, I don't think it felt that mm-hmm. it was being targeted or uh, uh, that has also to do with very strict policies and laws when it comes to uh, racial expression and, and racial harmony and what have you. But nonetheless, having said that, uh, mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. a lot of concern in Singapore about what is described here as Arabization. And, and Arabization, you know, is, in a lot of ways is a, is a oh, I think of its number. But it refers to uh, uh, Muslims, in, some Muslims in Southeast Asia, and it's a minority, but nonetheless, who uh, have turned ultra-conservative. Well, yeah, ultra-conservative of whatever strike. Uh, and change so Southeast Asia w- has its own terms for Muslim feasts, greetings, what have you. In other words, Wahhabi sort of Salafi uh, Saudi are used by these this group of people. Uh, they use right. the Arabic terms that are more generally used worldwide. Uh, they may or may not adopt a degree of dress that uh, that is associated with. Uh, ultra conservatives, uh, and you know, in some ways, it's mm-hmm. it, Arabization okay. then puts a stigma on it, if you wish. 
uh, you know, and, and to be frank, in a lot of ways, you know, the notion that you know, it's all Saudi funding is no longer true. It may, I mean, Saudi funding was important. It may not have been exclusively true throughout the decades, but it was very important. But certainly in the last five years, it's, uh, it's not, and, and even before that, it's not Saudi funding that does it. Interesting. Uh, you know, and I'm glad you raised Singapore uh, towards the end of our conversation, James. I, I've been to Singapore several times. I've met with this, both security services in Singapore. I must say I was very impressed with uh, their their understanding of the problem of Islamist extremism. You know, some have criticized Singapore for being a, a bit too much of a nanny state, uh, a little bit too much in control. But uh, I think it is held up as a as a as a success in terms of a you know an East, a Southeast Asian state that is Western, I guess, in, in, in most of its, its outlook. So I'm, I'm really glad you did raise that. I've got a sneaking suspicion I'm bringing you back, James. I, I think we've just scratched the surface in terms of our conversation about these things. You've got so many years of experience in the area and so many views on these things that um, we can't exhaust them all on one podcast. So so with your permission, I'm going to uh, you know, be in touch with you. I'm going to bring you back for a part two because I think the it's questions just pleasure. keep continuing. <laughs> it would be a pleasure. Well, so listen, so thank you so, so much for taking the time halfway around the world uh, for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. And uh, we will talk soon, my friend. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. That was my conversation with James Dorsey. I'm curious what you thought about what he had to say as a journalist and as a person who has a very in-depth knowledge of issues in Asia and the Middle East, etc. Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get a free daily digest of all the information right to your inbox. Love to hear what you think. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.